Greetings, welcome to The Young and the Woke. This is a special episode on indigenous ways of knowing and how we can awaken to the wisdom of indigenous communities. I was lucky to catch up with my friend and colleague, Shane Safir, as she interviewed Denise Augustine, an indigenous leader and educator from British Columbia. Shane has a new book coming out in March called Street Data, written with Jamila Dugan. Here's Shane. I am really thrilled and privileged to spend some time this morning with my dear friend, Denise Augustine um, from Vancouver Island. And it's been a really intense week in the States um, with the attempted coup and sort of riots in the Capitol. And um, it's just made me really come back to why I wrote the book about street data and, you know, what what we can turn to in this moment to reground ourselves and to reimagine our ways of knowing and being together. So there's no greater thinker and source of wisdom in that regard than my friend Denise. And I want to give her a second to just introduce herself and a little bit maybe about the work you do in BC. Hi, Chikasiam. Siam. Good morning and thank you, Shane. the Sweelt. My Hulkaminum name, Hulkaminum is the language of this place, is Sweelt. And my family is here, from here, from Vancouver Island, from the Couchin Valley. I'm a member of Shamanis First Nation, and I've been an educator for over 30 years. Um, and I'm also working with districts in the province to um, explore what we need to be doing differently as an education system to better support and serve our Indigenous learners. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. So um, as you know, because we've talked a lot about this theme of data and, and equity, um, Jamila and I wrote this book to try to challenge, if not flip, the dominant paradigm around data, this idea that that big data and sort of measuring student success through test scores and grades and all these systems of classification is, is what's going to get us to equity um, and what's going to close historic achievement gaps and opportunity gaps. And I think what I'd love to hear first from you about is Right now, in this moment we're in as a globe, as a country, the U.S., and as an educational system, what can we learn from centering Indigenous ways of knowing? Mm, thanks for that question, Shane. One of the first thoughts that comes to mind is, you know, with Western structures and ideas and ways of being, we've been trying to solve some pretty big problems for a long time and haven't been successful. And what that really demonstrates to me is that we need to be looking to other ways of knowing, other ways of being, other ways of understanding the world, um, and open to those ways in order to fertilize our thinking. So that now, more than ever, the world needs to be turning their hearts and minds to the wisdom, knowledge, and experience of Indigenous people all over the world. For thousands of years, we've raised our children, we've grown them to be productive members of our communities, we've laid to rest our loved ones, and done that in intimate relationship with the place where we live. Understanding that we are part of the world, not dominant over the world. 
that we are part of a community, not dominant over the community. And so I think there's there's something about that that the world needs to listen to. I also think that we have ways of understanding each other and ways of being with each other that the world can also learn from. Something you and I have talked a lot about is the role of story as a source of data. And we've both been frustrated at times by the language of, oh, it's just a story or it's just story, right? And this kind of almost marginalization of narrative as a source of information and insight. And so as we think about moving away from big quantitative metrics as our guidepost, our barometer of equity and inclusion and transformation, I wonder your thoughts on what role story might play in our ability to reimagine data on the street level. And, and I would offer this, that even when we look at, I, I, what were the words that you just used, like big scale data or satellite data you use in your book, that is just another story. That is a story that we tell about learners or about the world. It isn't any more valid than another type of story that we tell about who we are and and the world that we're living in. And I think that's where, you know, to your earlier point, I think that's where I struggle is when the only story we listen to is the one that's based in numbers and Western ways of thinking. I almost feel like we have to unlearn our attachment to the metric system of data, if you will, in order to be able to listen deeply and meaningfully um, to our elders, to our community members, and, and to our students, ultimately. Well, I just love that. You know, you talk so beautifully about listening deeply, and it's such a key piece to Indigenous pedagogy. And it requires that we slow down, ha- that we have some self-awareness, and that we create space, which which we don't really, that those aren't actions that are really prioritized in the Western experience. And so I would also offer that when we do that, when we slow down and really be present with ourselves, our human experience is so much more than a list of numbers and there's so much wisdom in it. And so, you know, we talk about, well, I just knew it in my gut or um, I knew it at the core of my being. I knew it somewhere else. And that's because we have all these sophisticated systems and information in our DNA and in our histories that can inform us in a way that numbers can never even come close to. All right, we're going to make a little bit of a pivot. So I've heard it said that we are in the middle of a quadruple pandemic. Um, Of course, COVID, this global public health crisis, um, the, you know, continual unveiling of systemic racism in the U.S. and abroad, um, and the kind of impact on Black, Indigenous, and people of color of, of systems of oppression, um, the economic crisis that's coming in the wake of this pandemic, and then, of course, you know, climate change. And so I want to talk a little bit about land acknowledgements, which is something I've learned a lot um, and pushed my own practice through learning and listening to you. And I know people have been asking you about this, so I love that we get to center your voice and your wisdom about this in a podcast. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about land acknowledgements? Why, how and why are they critical to really authentic efforts at um, to, to build equity and anti-racist practice. 
one of the gifts of a land acknowledgement that I see is it makes seen people who have been made invisible and it can give voice to those who have been silenced. Mm. And that's really important today. So when a leader stands up and, you know, a non-Indigenous leader in particular stands up and acknowledges that for thousands of years, Indigenous peoples have lived and raised families and worked on this land that acknowledges something that has been, you know, folks have tried to erase for the last 150 years or more. Things I would look for is, has that individual done enough homework to be able to speak with authenticity and accuracy about the history, perhaps of colonization, or are they familiar? Have they been given permission to tell a bit of, you know, a traditional story of the land, or are they able to speak to some of the current challenges? Is there something that demonstrates a commitment to understanding the people? But be careful not to make it about yourself. Mm. So what I've noticed more recently is, you know, I've said to people, personalize your land acknowledgement, and then it has become, well, a bit of a narrative about their personal connection to the land or their journey. And that's not what I'm saying. What I think I hear you saying is that in order to disrupt maybe the tendency to do an acknowledgement in a way that's very rote or scripted, you've got to do your homework and you've got to invest in your own learning. You have to bring some more depth of thought and reflection to the to the process. Um, and I, I really appreciate that um, provocation, if you will, or invitation from you to folks who are trying to build this practice. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for bringing your hearts and minds to listen to this conversation. I want to appreciate Shane and Denise for sharing their thoughts on this podcast. Part of my personal journey to challenge systemic racism is to learn from other cultures that have not thrived on categorization, division, and individualism. Thank you, Denise, for your wisdom. Props also to Rose Corr who transcribed this interview. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to The Young and the Woke wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, stay woke. And Denise, do you have a favorite ice cream flavor? I really struggle with favorite questions because I just like everything. How about something you like? How about just something you like? This may be a Western way of... of (laughs) 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 It's a funny thing because it's something that as educators, we do all the time to kids. You know, list your favorite as a get to know you thing. And I've I've always really had such a hard time. It's so funny. We really love going to Dairy Queen and getting their blizzards. And um, the salted caramel is the one that I get. And my husband gets the turtle lets, it's called, with pecans and chocolate.